0: Well, good to be up front here. (laughs) Hope everybody's well this morning. I um, ran into somebody in Hillcrest this last week. I was doing a wedding at Tallulah on Thursday afternoon of all times. And uh, met a lady that was working there. She says, are you from Westville Baptist? I was like, yes. She says, yeah, no, we've watched you once or twice online. I was like, it's absolutely amazing. It does genuinely amaze me that people... All over the world, in, in places that I'm not even aware of, are encountering God's Word and uh, just getting a taste of God's kingdom through what's happening online and the fact that you guys are here today. Thank you so much for being here and just lining up your heart with where God may want to take you this morning. So, welcome. Good to have you with us. Um, I often start with a reading of Scripture and I, and I also often kind of give a little bit of a something-something to help us read scripture, and that's what I want to do at the start of my sermon this morning. Before I read the passage of scripture, which is Acts 15, it's our next chapter in, the, in all the Acts chapters that we're preaching from, I'm a little bit of a something, something on how to read scripture. When reading a Bible story or a passage of scripture, when you, and I'm assuming you get the Bible in your hands every now and then, whether it be on screen or an actual Bible, Really hoping that does, does happen. But when reading a Bible story, please realize it's not primarily, the Bible is not primarily about my life and my story and my priorities and my agenda and my difficulties and my challenges and successes, etc. Okay? When we approach the Bible that way, simply trying to find my life in the pages of Scripture. We're setting ourselves up for difficulties. You know sometimes I wonder when we say, "I find this passage really hard to read." What we're really saying is possibly that this passage doesn't say enough about me and my life and my challenges and my colleagues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No. Let's settle with the fact that the Bible isn't meant to be always about us. The Bible is first and foremost always the story about God his priorities his story his agenda approach the Bible with that as the first filter in our minds and we'll see much much more and in time it will also become I think more profoundly relevant than if we approach it in any other way all right so that's just a little something that maybe you want to take with you next time you sit and you read the Bible. I'm going to read chapter 15 of Acts now from the message version. During the rest of the sermon, I'll use the NIV, a little bit different. But I found that Acts chapter 15 in the message version is just a little bit more understandable. So listen to it. Verses 1 to 11. I'll skip a few verses. Hit verses 19 to 21. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the, the movie of this, of, of that develops here. So 15 verse 1 and 2. It wasn't long... Before some Jews showed up from Judea, insisting that everyone get circumcised. Okay, Okay. hard first line, because it's like Judea, circumcision, Jews, it's like just such a world away from us. But just picture it. There's a bunch of Jewish people that come to a church named Antioch to tell them they must get circumcised. That's basically what starts in Judea, they come all the way to Antioch, and they say, you guys must be circumcised. If you're not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas, who were at this Antioch church, Paul and Barnabas and a few others, to put it it before the apostles and leaders in Jerusalem. Okay, so it starts in Judea. They come to Antioch. and They say, you guys must be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas are sitting, they're kind of leaders in this church in Antioch, They say, wait a minute, these guys are speaking, it sounds like they're speaking rubbish. Let's go to Jerusalem, where all the big bosses are, they earn the big bucks there, and we're going to sort it out with them. We're going to have a hardcore conversation, and we're going to make a final decision about this. So it starts here, goes to Antioch, and then back to Jerusalem, all right? After they were sent off and on their way, so they're heading towards Jerusalem now, they told everyone they met as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria about the breakthrough to the non-Jewish outsiders bunch of non-Jewish people becoming Christians. And as they're heading off to Jerusalem, they're telling them the story. Everyone who heard the news cheered. It was terrific news. Now when they got to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas were graciously received by the whole church there, including the apostles and leaders. They reported on their recent journey and how God had used them to open up things to the outsiders. And some Pharisees stood up to say their peace. They had become believers but continued to hold to the hard party line of the Pharisees. You have to circumcise the pagan converts. So now there's two groups. There's a group from Judea that say, you guys must get circumcised. Remember, they came to Antioch. These Antioch Oaks went up to Jerusalem. And they encountered another Pharisaical group up there saying, you guys need to be circumcised. All right? You have to circumcise the pagan converts, they said. You must make them keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and leaders called a special meeting to consider the matter. They called this the the, the Council of Jerusalem. It was the first big mega church meeting. They called apostles and leaders to, to consider this matter. And the arguments went on and on and back and forth, getting more and more heated. You know, that never happens in our church. We're never heated. We always speak with placid tones of wisdom and dignity. So it happened back then, more and more heated. And then Peter took the floor. And he steps up and he says, friends, you will know that from early on, God made it quite plain that he wanted the pagans to hear the message of this good news and embrace it. And not in any secondhand or roundabout way, but firsthand, straight from our mouth. And God, who can't be fooled by any pretense on our part, but always knows a person's heart, gave them the Holy Spirit exactly as he gave him to us. He treated the outsiders exactly as He treated us, beginning at the very center of who they were and working from that center outward, cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed in Him. So, why are you now trying to out God? Literally move to save us just as He did those from beyond our nation? So what are we arguing about? jump a couple of verses so here's my decision we're not going to unnecessarily burden non-jewish people who turn to the master okay effectively in other verses we see that that means they're not going to require them to be circumcised we'll write them a letter and so he goes on to another train of thought now we'll write them a letter until them be careful to not get involved in activities connected with idols to guard the morality of sex and marriage and to not serve food offensive to Jewish Christians, blood, for instance. Right, just that far, and we'll get to unpack quite a bit of that in the next few moments. You have to respect some of those that did the first or some things in history. Remember that first person who took the step and broke the ground for everyone else to follow. So the, the, this 18th century satirist, and I think I might have mentioned this in a service before, Jonathan Swift said, he was a bold man that ate that first ate an oyster. Respect to that person who actually picked up an oyster, looked at that gooey mess, and said, "Hmm, let me try it. Respect to that guy." But now, believe it or not, the first people to eat shellfish have been found. Um, anthropologist Curtis Marion of Arizona State University reported on what he found in a cave in a rocky bluff by the ocean at pinnacle Point south africa not only do you see them eating shellfish but there's a whale barnacle special species of barnacle that only appears on etc etc so ladies and gentlemen the good chance that it is here in south africa in the distant past that that we can blame a south african for starting this craze of eating oysters so of our claims to fame is that a thing to celebrate or not i don't know i think it's a bit bizarre and just to prove that, I'm going to get a bunch of people that never lie to tell us what it's like to eat the oyster. Who's never eaten an oyster yet first? Ever, ever before. Well, look, this is how it's going to go down when you try it. Yuck. Oh. Tastes
1: like the ocean. Oh. I will be brave and I will sacrifice myself. I have just eaten a prehistoric creature that was resurrected by the Fine Brothers. Good, okay, that's not a clam. I just don't like seafood. Nope, nope. I've never tasted something like this. I'm probably never gonna have it again. I don't know about this. My teeth, my teeth touched it. That doesn't taste good. I cannot swallow this. It feels, feels, like belly's fine. I think I know what this is. is this is oysters. My mom eats these. I know. Okay. <laughs> that was so gross. I don't like it at all. Never try this. I haven't tasted boogers, but if I have, I probably guess it tastes exactly like this. <laughs>
0: So the, so for those people that put up their hand who've never tasted oyster, I'm sure you're going to rush out and grab one of those. You know, as, as tough as that task was, especially, and not just eating the, the first oyster, but, but offering that oyster to the next person, that must be a particularly tough task. You know, I'm, I'm completely in the category of, man, this tastes like the ocean, that salty, grimy feel. You know, And so for me to give it to someone else and say, listen, give it a go. When that was the first impulse, you have to be really good at selling that. But as tough as a task that was, I can think of something that must have been many times more difficult to sell to the next person. Think about the first time circumcision was suggested as a way to identify yourself in terms of faith or culture. Now that is a truly difficult sell. I want you to imagine a moment. You're in a clan meeting like hundreds of years ago, dressed in your animal clothes, I don't know, skin clothes. And some guy gets up and he says, hey, I've got an idea. And he proceeds to go into graphic detail of what must be done to truly prove that you're part of this clan. And he launches into this idea of circumcision as the way to actually prove that you're part of this clan. I mean, that guy, I think he must have had one of the most incredible speeches in all of history up his sleeve, especially because there one, obviously, there was one other guy in the room that at some point during his speech said, yes, what an excellent idea. I'm in. I'm going to follow. Sign me up. I'm ready for this. You know, to be 100% honest, if I was sitting in that room and someone launched that idea, I would say, I just can't see this idea taking off. However it started, the practice of circumcision has become absolutely massive throughout the world, throughout history, in many, many cultures, and a whole bunch of different religions. Circumcision is massive. In terms of where we find ourselves as we read this passage of Scripture today, remember that for the Jewish people, the nation that effectively gave birth to Christianity— this act of circumcision was central to their religion. Okay? Every new generation of boys was circumcised at birth to keep their faith tradition and to keep the cultural identity within nation strong. Even those that wanted to join at a later stage, no matter what their age was, had to go through this very same painful procedure. In fact, it became an act that was so intricately tied up to who they were as a nation that you wouldn't be called part of the nation unless this had happened. Kind of like what a ring is to a wedding day today. To lose that part of the day, a wedding ring, feels like you're changing the whole thing. It just doesn't compute. And so though it's hard for us to imagine as we sit in Westphal in 2022, it actually makes complete sense that some of these Jewish believers wanted this act to move naturally from their faith into this new expression of Christianity. And so we get these Judeans and these guys in Jerusalem both kind of pushing this agenda. I mean, why wouldn't they want that? Why wouldn't they? Up to that point in their history, circumcision had served them very well. That deepened their commitment and their faith over many, many years in their religion. And so this became one of the birthing issues that the early church that we read about in Acts has to navigate. It's a tough one that's brewing here. What do we do with this thing that was so central to the faith of those that were, the the faith of so many people that are in our congregation? It was central to their faith. It was critical to their faith. What do we do with this thing? And so feelings ran start to run very deeply around this. So much so that in the first verse of this passage, we meet this bunch of Jewish people, the Judeans, that feel so strongly about this issue of circumcision that they walked, get this, they walked or traveled by horseback, I don't know how it was, maybe they walked or traveled 700 kilometers from Judea to Antioch simply to sell this doctrine in this teaching, 700 kilometers. What would get you to travel 700 kilometers to sell something to somebody? These guys did it. It was probably a two-month journey to go and simply tell the church at Antioch, guys, you need to be circumcised. That's a huge amount of conviction. Here's the thing that we need to remember about this church in Antioch, okay? Judeans came to Antioch. It was a very, very different kind of church for that day and age. That's critical to remember. It had a bunch and a a growing group of new Gentile, in other words, not originally Jewish, believers that were filling the pews. That's what made it so different. To say the least, this was an anomaly. An an anomaly. Say that ten times quickly. An an (laughs) anomaly. You know what I'm trying to say in those early days of Christianity. There was just little or no precedent. This was a weird church. In many sense, it was a new animal, it was a new beast, and so it was trying to find their space, their identity and practice in this world of Christianity. There was no precedent. And so there were some of the old God in this church, some people with a Jewish background, they had come down from Jerusalem when there were persecutions in Jerusalem, and they had landed in Antioch. But now it seemed that this church at Antioch was having to front up to the fact that the Gentile believers... They weren't going anywhere. They were here to stay. If anything, the group of Gentile believers was going to possibly become bigger and bigger and bigger. There were more and more of these Gentile believers filling the pews. And so you can imagine the old God, those that were steeped in Jewish religions, but had had, had chosen to follow Jesus anyway. You can imagine they started to feel the difference in the congregation. It's kind of surreal for them to sit in church on a, in the synagogue in the church on a Saturday or the Sunday, and to kind of say, "Geez, I'm, I'm I'm worshiping next to Romans, next to Greek, those philosophers. You know, I'm worshiping next to those guys." Because those people had always been on the other side of the fence when it came to faith, and now they were in this inner circle that what that moment might sound like in my head in this day and age here at our church? It starts off with me doing a double take. Sitting in church one Sunday, and I look, and then I look at something again. I go like, whoa, that's different. Things are changing. Or things have changed. That's not the normal person or normal kind of person I sit next to you and worship with. That's where it starts. A couple of weeks or maybe months later, I get to the point of the trajectory of this thinking. Thinking continues, it's, and I might say something to the effect of, "If I was a hundred percent honest, I don't really get their style of worship, okay, or the expression of worship all that well. I just don't get it. I don't relate to it." And then. You know, maybe it's because they're younger, maybe because they're older, maybe because it's a different worship style. Maybe they're more exuberant or, or less exuberant. They're much more quiet and staid. I just don't get that. Yeah? Maybe they're culturally otherwise. And then inevitably, even further down the line of that type of thinking, somewhere along the line of this journey, we arrive at this weird conclusion. We say, where a little voice suggests us in the quietness of our mind, something to the effect of, hey, Actually, they're just doing it wrong. I'm right, they're wrong. And we often add the, the qualification: they too this, or they are too that. Or they do too little of this, too little of that, however it is. And I think there's something similar happening here in this text that we've just read, in this church moment of church history, except it's on a much bigger scale. The people from Judea suspected that the very basis of these Gentile believers' faith is wrong. It wasn't just their worship style. They were looking from Judea, and they said, no, those Antioch guys are going all pear-shaped. The very basis of their faith is wrong. Everyone knows, they might have said at a meeting back in Judea, everyone knows that in order for a faith community to exist properly, you have to be circumcised. It's a given. Maybe in this day and age we'll throw in different words. You have to be baptized. It's a given in this certain way. It's a given. You need to speak in tongues. It's a given. You need to sign on this dotted line. You know, it's a given. I don't know. You fill in the gap. And this starts to cause issues, massive issues. The Judeans' expectation and their teaching causes massive issues. You can imagine the Gentile believers sitting in church on a Sunday saying, Wait a minute, you didn't tell us that we need to be snipped in order to belong to your church. This is how their welcome at the beginning of church happened on that Sunday morning. They say, Welcome, everyone. So great to have you at church this morning, especially those that are online. It's fantastic to have you on church this morning. Straight after the church service, we're going into the chapel to do a circumcision class and we'll throw in a free procedure afterwards if you really want to belong to our church. How bizarre that would be for the newcomers, the Gentiles, the Romans, and the, and, and, the, and, and the Greeks who didn't believe in this kind of stuff. And so you can imagine the confusion and the insecurity and the accusations and everything slipping into the moment. People felt strongly about circumcision. People felt strongly about non circumcision Just want to pause a little bit, just for a moment in the storyline. I want you to think, isn't it incredibly amazing how often we the faithful, including all of you as part of the faithful flock, isn't it incredible how often we the faithful stand in the way of people who just want to encounter Jesus? It's all they want. It's such a common difficulty that we see that a massive chunk of Jesus' ministry was committed to fighting this fight. Why do the religious people stand in the way of people that just want to meet Jesus? And so we look at the story of the prodigal son. It starts off with this, this thing about this dodgy son who goes and spends all the money. But then the whole story leans strongly towards the older son who represents this religiously you know self-righteous guy who's always been duty-bound he's gone to church every Sunday and all the rest of it and how his anger and stuff suffocates the reunion of this younger son with his dad you think about the story of the woman caught in adultery and we have the picture of the lady on the floor just about to be stoned and Jesus standing between her and the leaders the religious leaders who are about to start lobbing stones and again, the, the, the storyline is, is about these leaders that must catch a wake up. Who's going to cast the first stone? Who's the man without sin that's going to cast the first stone? And then only later does he turn back to her and say, sin no more again. What about the story of the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears and with perfume over and over again and again? Jesus turns the whole moment to those guys that are in the room that are probably laughing at her and scorning her, and he says, wait a minute, you didn't treat me like this. And so much of Jesus' life and his ministries around this topic, every one of those stories has this tension at the core. Religious strength, religious influence, religious experience and wisdom and passion, weirdly being orientated against some people that just want to find and be with Jesus. How bizarre is that picture? I don't know if you've ever asked why so many of us are like that. Just to add the quick proviso, every one of us need to be very careful before we point at others as the cause of this issue. Because very naturally, this is a blind spot of our faith. What is it in us that causes us to say instinctively, to stand up and say, no, 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 this is how it should be done. You know, Unless you do it this way, you will not be sufficiently Christian. Now maybe it comes from a good space. It's because that thing was so powerful in, in our lives. It was so significant in our journey with Christ. Like for the Jews, it was circumcision. It was a good thing. It was powerful. It was significant. It had its worth. And so we try to package it and give it to the next generation or to the next person as the true answer to their faith journey. If only you do this, you'll be okay. That might be the reason. It comes from a good place. Maybe it comes from a very dark space. I think many of us harbor way beneath the surface, far beyond the vision of a casual glance. Now, there's a, there's a prejudice there. that is just all too ready to raise its head in moments like that. Maybe it's a fearfulness that is so closely tied to the unknown. I, I, I don't understand this. So instead of asking questions, instead of seeking to understand this difference, I move to accusations or I choose to back off instead. It's so much easier. Now, I don't know the reason so much of our faith is like this, but it was there in Jesus' time. It was there in the early church, and make no mistake, it will be in our church too. Please, God, help us to fight this good fight. Help us to protect with everything we have that impulse that people have to see Jesus and to get to know Jesus. Help us to protect that. Now, fortunately, there are some people back in that day that are willing to stand up and, and step into this fight. And so Paul and Barnabas head off to Jerusalem and travel another 300 kilometers this time. Okay to get into this kind of conversation that would solve this. So lots of traveling here, 700 kilometers, 300 kilometers, all of them just to solve this issue. So Paul and Barnabas check off and they go have this conversation. And again, this action gives us opportunity just to pause and consider again. These guys heading off to Jerusalem. The nature of salvation, the way a person is saved, The way a person becomes a Christian, the dynamics that bring a person into a deeply significant journey with Jesus, this is a conversation worth taking seriously, like Paul and Barnabas did. It's the caliber of conversation that is of massive importance. You know, some things about our faith, you know, we can let those things slide, to be 100% honest. We don't have to die on a hill for some things in our faith. And I'm not going to get into the list of those things because it will distract us from the point. But not everything in our faith is as important as acknowledging that Jesus is God. Okay? So some things in our faith, we can let them slide. Other things, we must be up for the tough conversations. We must be ready for the tough conversation. Just like Paul and Barnabas. We must know when the moment comes to actually step away from the background and the fringe into a conversation because it cuts so deeply to the core of my faith. That's how significant it is to me. And when that kind of topic lands on the table at a bra, when that level, that caliber of topic lands on the table at a family gathering or with friends or amongst our colleagues, I must know that this is the kind of conversation that requires me to be fully present. I need to be working at my attitude and my language so that I don't get in the way of what needs to be said. But this, this conversation, it needs me to be part of it. And I need to be part of it for my own faith's sake. I need to be pushing back or grappling and not just choosing to stand off. Sometimes, sometimes I think it's true that that Christians mustn't be so winsome, so nice, that we lack the backbone of considered beliefs. We must know when to step into the conversation. This was the kind of topic that Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas couldn't sit down and just like accept. It was a critical conversation. It was close to Paul's heart, maybe because it was such a massive, life-changing moment for him. His salvation, it was huge. You remember that story of Damascus and a light appears and his whole life changes. And so salvation is, is right in the blood of his faith. He cannot just laugh it off as a, as a small topic of conversation. It's deep with him. And he sees the issues of salvation with massive clarity. In his little sermon that he preaches to the guys at Jerusalem, he uses three statements to, to describe salvation. Firstly, he speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, yes, he the deal. Salvation equals the work of the Holy Spirit. It goes into the zone of purification by faith. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Purification by faith. And then it's all about grace. He says, those are the three zones. So here's he the verses that he used. First one, he says, God who knows the heart, Show that he accepted them by the Holy Spirit. Sorry, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. When it comes to salvation and the experience of salvation and the journey towards and in and through salvation, the Holy Spirit will be present. what that means is something changes supernaturally. Something changes. Something in my mind, my perspective on life starts to change. There's a depth of a movement in my soul that says, yes, something's moving here. I'm seeing different truths in different lights now. And that is God's Spirit leading us towards the truth. It's the Holy Spirit. Some people, you know, it's something supernatural, a miracle or speaking in tongues. Other people, their whole life orientation starts to soften towards God and the things of God. And so the Holy Spirit is always part of a salvation experience. It's a deeply, deeply soul, deep soul movement because the Holy Spirit is working down deep in us. And then verse 9, he says, He did not discriminate between us and them, for He purified their hearts. Purification. When Jesus dawns on a person for the first time, there's a renewed sense and a love for what is pure and what is good. That comes kind of from left field. I remember when I became a Christian back in standard 8, grade 10, whatever you want to call it. And uh, for the first time in my life, uh, okay, for the first time in a long time, I decided, no, I don't like swearing anymore. Teenage boy, standard 9, grade 11, somewhere around there. That, that's not something that dawns on a, on a young guy. And, and suddenly, when God's Spirit worked in my life, and I came to know Jesus. Swearing didn't, wasn't part of my life anymore. It just jarred. It just jarred with the, with the Jesus I had gotten to know. And so my life started to reorientate towards something that was much more pure. I didn't get it 100% right from that point on. But I was sold in a whole new way to what is pure, what is Holy. And what he's right, those words suddenly took a much more beautiful meaning for me than ever before. And so there was this purification thing that happened. I may not be there yet, but I always longed to be there, and I've always longed to be there ever since. You can almost say a longing is his birth in us to reflect my God that is holy and pure. This God that I love, I want to be pure now. And this happened by faith. It, it, it was initiated. This purification didn't just happen overnight, but there was a faith step that happened somewhere along the line where my eyes went from this world and this stuff to actually it's about Jesus. Actually, this world and this stuff is interpreted and lived best in the light of who Jesus is. And so my faith journey started and then the last thing that he says is, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. All of this stuff happened just because Jesus is kind to me. This is grace that allows me to do this kind of stuff. So, so, so those were the three almost non-negotiables in Paul's life. When he thought about salvation, those were the three zones that he went to. And in this list, there's no space for something like circumcision to pay, play a significant role. These guys selling that doctrine were just making things way too complicated. And so he got up out of his chair. He said, come Barnabas, let's get to Jerusalem and solve this once and for always. My dear salvation is being threatened and we need to sort this out. Our church has a bunch of non-negotiables. Just like Paul had when it comes to salvation. Our church has a bunch of non-negotiables. I don't know if you're aware of them. You might want to grab a copy of the Constitution sometime, and there's a, a section called the Statement of Belief. It's our most deeply held, profound non-negotiables. When I say non-negotiables, it's the things that form us in the most deep, deepest level of our faith. Go have a look at it sometime. But it's also very much implicit in our logo. I don't know if you know that home ground logo why don't you have a look at screen and see what i'm talking about
1: the theme of our new logo lies around a series of three lines at the center they represent god the three in one the center of all we do these three lines continue to form the h of home and the g of ground they also represent our mission and vision to be transformed individuals in a transformed church that is involved in the transformation of our community and world. The lines emerging from the center look like a ploughed field, ground that is ready for seeds to be sown, roots to grow deep and lives to flourish. From the other direction, they represent a pathway leading towards God, a pathway on which we hope many will walk as they find their way home into a relationship with Him. At the bottom, the G has been cut off. We are a church that is grounded, rooted and established in the love of Christ. We are real and authentic, family, just as God intended. We are
0: home ground. We are home ground. Now, We might not travel 700 kilometers or 300 kilometers, but it's those convictions that form the length and the breadth of who we are as a church centered around who god is centered around the mission that he's calling us to our convictions play a massive role in us i'm just about to wrap up so the council at jerusalem comes to a critical principle that governs not only the situation that they were facing but governs us today as well whenever we think about how we function as a church We need to keep this principle in mind. So this is what they say. The underlying principle that was adopted by the council in Jerusalem to cover that moment is captured in verse 19. Um, The NIV says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult to those that are turning towards God we should not make it difficult. We don't want to make it difficult for anyone to pursue Jesus. Effectively, he's saying, let's get rid of the red tape, whatever red tape we can imagine. Let's get rid of the circumcision. Whatever the red tape is, just come to Jesus. It's as simple and as profound as that. Whatever happens in this church, folk, you might not Like a bunch of stuff. You might not agree with a bunch of stuff. Whatever happens, whatever happens, the most fundamental thing that you can do in the name of your faith is just turn to Jesus. It's as simple as that. I've done hundreds of weddings. I tried to work out the other day how many, probably in the region of, I don't know, five or 600 weddings. I often just speak to the couple and say, remember the most fundamental thing of a wedding? It's not the dress the huge amount that you've paid the guests most fundamental moment is you saying your promises to somebody else in a way that you mean it that's what it's all about that's the fundamental thing fundamental thing about your faith is not about a bunch of other things the most fundamental thing is you turning to Jesus it's as simple as that Yes, there's a process of growth that happens after. There's a process of sanctification, purification that follows on. But it all and always starts very simply with a turning towards Jesus. Oh, may we as a church always protect the simplicity of that and the importance of that. Circumcision, implying an adherence to the whole Old Testament law, threatened that, and so Paul worked to diffuse it. I'm going to jump right to the last point because it's taking way too long. Remember at the start I said let's get into God's agenda of why he writes a passage of Scripture or why he includes a passage of Scripture. I think the reason this story was included in the Bible is very simply this, that something may be branded on our heart and soul that is simply to say, I will not make it unnecessarily difficult for people to encounter Jesus. That's the reason for this story. In the midst of all the travels from Judea to Antioch to Jerusalem, and these two people saying, groups of people saying circumcised, and what happened on the way, the simplicity, the major reason I believe, and the, the other reasons obviously, but the major reason this passage was written is simply that you and I, might always say, let's not make coming to Jesus difficult. Let's protect with everything we have the freedom that people have to simply come to Jesus, to turn to Him, and to pray. Sometimes we make church so much more complicated than that. But that impulse, yes, may we protect it with everything we have. If there's anybody this morning that wants to take that, just that initial faith step. Maybe you haven't before, and you want to effectively turn to Jesus this morning. You might want to come do it up front here with me, and I'll help you to have a little word of prayer. You might want to do it where you're sitting, but it's simple. Just turn to Jesus. Come to Him with faith. Allow the Holy Spirit to enter and to work with you and to lead you into a life that is described in the Bible as everlasting, everlasting. Let's pray together as we close. We pray that all of us, Lord, may declutter our view of our faith. And remember, actually, it's all about just turning to you, Lord Jesus. Turning to you with faith and with hope. Turning to you to discover your grace and your love for us. And to see a love that births in our life for you too in a worship of you. Pray that we'd all be all be sold on this thing of protecting against making faith too much of a complicated.